0: of you who are joining us online, so glad that you have joined with us today. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I am one of the pastors here at Central, uh, and it is a delight uh, to be able to preach this morning. It is always such an honor to be able to open the, God, uh, the Word of God with you, uh, and I am excited to be able to do that today. One of the things I, I, I really love about being part of Central is just the, the commitment uh, that the church has to actually equip Uh, you, the the saints, to actually take on ministry. And one of the ways we've done that in the past is through our preaching lab, all right? So we have put on sort of a a little class just for a few people Uh, each year. We take uh, and we give you a chance to actually try preaching, you get to actually uh, put together a sermon. Uh, we spend a little bit of time teaching you how to do that. What does preaching look like? But then you actually get a chance to do it, to give it a shot. Uh, if you've been in uh, the preaching lab or you know someone, uh, it's, you get two chances. You get two 15-minute sermons. We'll sign you some uh, texts uh, to preach from. And then you get to go and, and give it a shot, see uh, how it goes. And then right after you're done... So you get up on this stage, and you're going to give your 15-minute your sermon. As soon as you're done, uh, we are then going to give you some feedback. All right? So we're going to tell you what you did well and what you still have to work on. Now, I, I know I am describing for some of you a waking nightmare. Not only would you have to actually speak in public, but then immediately afterwards, we're going to critique you and tell you all the things that you did wrong. All right? Well, Well, the truth is, no one's first sermon is good. Right? No one gets up here and is like amazing at it the first time. No, you've got to work on that, and so you need to hear that feedback to actually begin to, to get better at it. You need to know, do you have some really annoying habit that's actually just distracting everyone while you're speaking? Do you speak really softly, and so no one can hear you when you're up here? Are you stuck to here, and you're you know, stuck to your manuscript, and you're just reading the whole time, each and every word? Right? You need to know some of those things so you can begin to work on them and grow at it. It's a skill that you can actually develop and, and even as pastors, we're continually trying to, to get better and to work on this skill of preaching. But as anyone who has ever preached, whether in our lab or outside, can tell you, preaching is far more than just learning how to speak in public. Right? There's a lot more that goes behind preaching that, than just the ability to, to stand up here. There's a big difference between a sermon and a TED talk. Right? Both can even seem fairly similar, right? It's some person standing on stage delivering sort of a, a monologue. It can even be very inspirational and you can leave thinking, yeah, I, I wanna take that on and go conquer the world afterwards. And I'm gonna say that there is a fundamental difference between a sermon and a TED talk, right? Preaching has always been part of the church. Uh, What we do when we gather together is hear the word of God. In fact, preaching is part of worship. More than just uh, an act of public speaking, it is worship. It's taking the the word of God and applying it to our lives through the work of Jesus And, and what we are reading today in our text is exactly that. We're reading, well, it's Peter's first sermon. Now, you know how I just said no one's good at it the first time? Well, Peter's the exception, all right? We're gonna read his first sermon, and it is pretty good, all right? In fact, it's the very first sermon of the church a little bit weird to think about that, but the church as we have it today begins in Acts chapter 2, and so this is the first sermon. There's been plenty of preachers throughout the Bible, right? You've got Moses, you've got Elijah, Ezra, Jesus even is preaching, yet here is, as the church is founded, this is the first sermon of the Christian church. I said there was a fundamental difference between preaching and just speaking, and perhaps the, the, the most fundamental is that preaching is dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit, which is exactly what we see here in Acts chapter two. So if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open up. Acts chapter two is where we're gonna be today uh, as we walk through this, and what I'd like us to do is really just hear Peter's sermon. I'd like us to hear this first sermon of the church and hear what it has to say to us today. So Peter begins by addressing this crowd that has gathered outside. If you remember what's all going on, there is a big festival taking place in Jerusalem and people from all over the the Roman Empire, really all over the world have gathered into Jerusalem. People from all different backgrounds, different languages and the disciples of Jesus are gathered in this room. They're gathered to pray. They're waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And last week we looked at what happened when the Holy Spirit came. There was a a violent or a a loud uh, wind came upon fire sat above their heads and they began to proclaim all the amazing things that God had done. And what was happening as they were doing that is all the people outside from all over the world were hearing them speak in their own native languages. People were saying, how am I hearing someone speak my own native language here in Jerusalem? That's not what should be happening. And so this crowd has begun to gather around outside to be able to find out what is going on here. And there's a bunch of people and they just simply look at them and say, ah, ignore them. They're drunk, right? Pay them no mind. And so Peter actually hearing the crowd kind of outside, walks outside and he begins to address them. He says, men of Judah, those who live here in Jerusalem, pay attention to what I've got to say. Let let me speak for just a moment. We're not drunk, In fact, now it's hard to tell whether or not he's making a joke, but he very well might be. He says, it's only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. We haven't been awake long enough to get drunk. We're not drunk, that's not what's going on here. But he says, let me tell you what is happening. Let me tell you what all of this commotion, what all this noise is about, because it's something that you have been waiting for. In fact, it's something that your parents have been waiting for, your grandparents, your great-grandparents have been waiting for what is happening here today. He says to them, the prophet Joel, he spoke about this day. And so Peter begins to quote from them, uh, quote for them Joel chapter two. Look at verse, uh, verse 17 in our passage. It says, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my servants and they shall prophesy. Peter looks at the crowd and he says, look, I I know, I know in the past God has sent the Holy Spirit only on, on very specific people, Kings, leaders, prophets, people who are given a very unique task in the life of Israel and and given the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish that task and lead the people. But Peter says that is not all that God promised. God promised that he would send one day his Holy Spirit to be given to all. The Holy Spirit would be for everyone. Every one of his servants would now be empowered to serve him in the fullness of his spirit. And Peter says that day that Joel was talking about is today. Today is uh, that coming true. That is what you are witnessing here. It's what Moses even longed for one day. He says in the book of Numbers, would that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on them. What Moses was even longing for has now happened here today. Old, young, men, women, all the people of God would receive the Holy Spirit in order to proclaim this good news of salvation. And hear me, just as true as that was 2,000 years ago when Peter said it, it is true here as well. Every single believer who has placed their trust in Jesus has been given the Holy Spirit in order to proclaim the good news of what Jesus has done. Paul will later write, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each, each and every believer is given the Holy Spirit. It's not just for, for, for the, the pastors, for, for the leaders, it's not just for, for worship leaders, it's not just for important people or something like that. The Holy Spirit is given to each and every believer to empower us to be able to follow after him. Look, you might not be called to preach, yet you are given the Holy Spirit to proclaim the good news of Jesus. If you're a believer here, this is for you. You have the promise of the Holy Spirit Do not miss how incredible that promise is, that the Holy Spirit actually dwells in us, empowers us, guides us, directs us, so that we can follow Jesus. Think about how many of the saints in the Old Testament have longed for what we experience on a daily basis. It's a good thing, let us rejoice because of this. Do you remember what David prays when he sins with Bathsheba? Psalm 51, he writes this, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Do you hear that desperation? Lord, do not take your spirit from me. That is the confidence we have each and every day. We do not need to be worried that God is going to take his spirit from us. We can rejoice and be glad because he has sealed us with the spirit for all who believe. This is your gift. Do not neglect it. Lean into the fact that God has gifted you for a particular reason. Don't take for granted the beauty, the wondrousness of the promise that he has given us in the Holy Spirit. Let us rejoice and tell the mighty works of God. But Peter here, he continues his quotation from Joel. So he would have known that his audience was actually familiar with this prophecy in Joel. They would have known how it continues on, and so Peter makes sure he continues his quotation because he knows there's a question that's gonna be burning in their minds. Look at verse 19 in our text. He continues, I will show wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, Peter knows his audience is going to be asking a question here. If you are saying that the Holy Spirit is being poured out on all on all believers, doesn't that mean that the day of the Lord is coming? See, the prophets talked about this day of the Lord when God would come and he would actually bring judgment on all the nations. Every people, every group would be judged by God. No one would be, uh, no one would escape from it. And so if Peter is going to say, well, God has poured out his Holy Spirit, well then where is the day of the Lord? And perhaps more than that, what is this salvation that Joel is talking about? So Peter picks that up and he declares, "Well, I have good news for you because the Messiah has come. See, the prophets weren't just speaking about this coming day of the Lord and this day of judgment. In fact, they also told of one who would come who would save the people of Israel from their sins. And so Peter proclaims, do you not know? Jesus is the Messiah. See, Joel told you that this day of the Lord would come with signs and wonders. Do you not remember what Jesus has been doing here? In this very city, do you not remember all the miraculous things that he has been doing? The sick are healed, the blind can see, the the deaf can hear. He multiplies food, he walks on the water. Do you remember what happened when he was crucified? Yeah, the sun went dark in the middle of the day. There were earthquakes and even dead people rose up and came to life. How many more signs and wonders do you need to see to realize God is at work through this man? All these signs have been shouting the fact that what Jesus is telling you is true. He is the coming Messiah. But of course, there's another objection right away, isn't there? See, his audience again would have simply said, well, how can Jesus be the Messiah? He was put to death. He was crucified. How can we have a crucified, dead Messiah that doesn't work? And so Peter says, yes, he, he was put to death. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter starts off and he says, do you not realize his dying was not an accident? It's not because God was not working through him. It's not because he wasn't the Messiah. In fact, that was part of God's plan all along. Though you meant it as evil, though you meant simply to reject the Messiah and put him to death by the hands of the Romans, God had planned that for good. Jesus died because God was working through him and here's the proof, he didn't stay dead. He didn't stay in the grave. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh will dwell in hope, for you have not abandoned my soul to Hades, or let your holy one see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness in your presence. Jesus didn't stay dead because it was not possible for death to hold him. So Peter brings in Psalm 16. David, the king, is is speaking in that Psalm of what would happen eventually to the Messiah, this holy one of God, and he says, ye will not see corruption. And he wasn't talking about himself. David was not talking about himself. No, Peter says, how could he be? We have his tomb, we know exactly where it is. It's in this very city, and it's not an empty tomb. David has rotted in his tomb. Jesus has risen. In fact, Peter says, look, we are all witnesses of that fact, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Peter, the 11 other apostles standing them, are witnesses of the fact that Jesus did not stay in the grave, that he actually got up and they ate with him, they talked with him They saw the scars on his hands and his feet. They touched him, he was really alive. This wasn't just a figment of their imagination. This wasn't some sort of hallucination. In fact, hundreds of people saw Jesus alive. In fact, scripture had been fulfilled in this man, Jesus. He is the Messiah by all the signs and wonders that he performed and by his resurrection from the grave. He is this one who would save his people. And it's in fact by his death that he does it. See this is what Isaiah told us would happen to the Messiah. Isaiah 53, it says out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, be accounted righteous, he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the men. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Why did the Messiah die? Why did Jesus go to the cross? He was to pay the punishment of the sins of others. He to take on the, the transgressions of others. He bore our iniquities and he poured out his soul to death. In fact, he died in our place. So that when that day of the Lord comes and God judges all the earth, the punishment for our sins does not fall on us, but it falls on Jesus. The good news is Jesus died in our place. And I love that. Did you notice the very last line? In there, there in Isaiah, he pours out his soul to death, he bears our iniquities, and yet he makes intercession for the transgressors. How can he both die and intercede for us? It's because he rose again. Jesus did not just die for our sins as if that were a light thing. In fact, he rose and makes intercession for us. Jesus, the Messiah, stands between us and God. And by his death and resurrection declares that our sins are paid in full. There is nothing left to condemn us. See, that's why David rejoices in this psalm. That's why he is rejoicing about the paths of life that God shall bring him. He knows that it's not because of what he can do, but because of what this holy one shall do. In this Messiah, there is life. Even on that day of the Lord, when God will judge all the earth. Hear me, none of us will stand outside of that judgment. None of us will be exempt from it, and the Bible tells us that all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. Consider what that's going to actually look like on that day. As your entire life is laid open for everyone to see. Every thought, every action, every intention of the heart, every moment alone, every hidden desire explicitly, even painfully exposed and laid bare. It's going to be a day of brutal honesty. When there actually is no excuse that could shield us, there is no uh, reframing us to put us in a better light, we will be seen exactly as we are. And realistically on that day there is only one question. Can I be saved? Can I actually be saved on that day when I am completely out of excuses, of any way to save myself? Is there any hope for me then? Oh, and the good news, the good news is yes, there is. There is hope for you on that day in the name of Jesus and the one who has covered our sins, the one who has taken the punishment for our sins, and it has not fallen on us. In fact, it has fallen on Jesus himself. Jesus went to the cross for the purpose of taking the punishment for our sins, that our sins would be paid for in full. And in fact, Jesus' perfect record would be given to us. See, when that day comes, when our life is just laid open like a book, and when all of our ugly sins are exposed, it is Jesus who will come and he will say, but I have covered their sin. I have dealt with it, and in fact, they have my perfect righteousness. See, that is the day of the Lord, when we shall see our Savior face to face, Good news is that everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Jesus is the Messiah, the one who saves his people, and the one who intercedes on our behalf. But here's the question then, and it's perhaps the question that Peter's listeners were asking as well. How is it that Jesus can actually stand between God and all of humanity? See, the Old Testament is full of examples of people who tried to do exactly that. Think of Abraham trying to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah, yet those cities are destroyed. Moses standing for the people of Israel, yet an entire generation wandered in the desert. Even the priests in the Old Testament, they they would offer a sacrifice for their own sins before they could ever offer a sacrifice for someone else's. It's like having your lawyer in the jail cell next to you. It doesn't look good, does it? But in fact, Peter hasn't finished his sermon. He's got one more point for his hearers to hear and I think we need to hear it as well. Yes, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah but more than that, Jesus is the Lord. See, Peter goes on to tell his audience it's not even just that Jesus died, that he rose again. It's that he was also ascended into heaven. Look back, verse 33. Jesus is raised up, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter says, Jesus is the one who has given to us the Spirit of God. Think about that for just a moment. What kind of an incredible statement is that? How can Jesus send and order the Spirit of God? Peter says, well, it's because he is ascended into the heavenly places. He now sits at the right hand of the throne of God in in the splendor and the majesty of God most high, Jesus sits at the right hand, the seat of power. So he is far greater than any earthly king could ever imagine. Far greater than King David in all of his splendor. In fact, David himself realizes it. Verse 34, Peter says, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, as David is writing this psalm, he comes to this understanding that this Messiah, this one who would sit on his throne after him, should be far, far greater than he himself is going to be. The Messiah would be the one greater than death itself. He would be the one to reign from the heavenly court. He would send the Spirit of God on all his servants. He shall intercede for us before the Father. Who can do that but God? And so Peter says, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. See, Peter says Jesus has the the name both Lord and Christ. Christ is Messiah. But he's not using this term Lord here as as just a title, like sir or or general or sergeant or anything like that. No, he's using it as a name. He's using it as the name of the Lord, Yahweh, this great I am that is worthy of all worship, the one who created all of us. Peter says, that is Jesus. In fact, he is God himself, the very same God who rules over all things, created all things. He is one with the Father and the Spirit, sits enthroned in heaven and sends forth the Spirit of God. Jesus is that great I am that Moses spoke to all those years ago. And he is the one who stands between God and humanity because he is both fully God and fully man. Jesus is the Lord. And so now I think we can more fully understand the the promise that Joel had for his readers. See, Joel talked about the coming of salvation. Verse 21 in our text and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus himself is the Lord and there is salvation for everyone who calls on his name. He is the Messiah who died to save his people. He is the Lord who reigns forevermore on his throne interceding on behalf of sinners like you and me. Now this is where we actually pause in Peter's sermon for today. But but I really can't just leave us here hanging at the edge without at least pointing to what happens next. Those who hear Peter's sermon ask a very simple question. What do we do? What do we do next? How can this salvation be ours? And Peter responds, repent and be baptized. Now we're gonna spend basically all of next week talking about what that means, but let me just give you a little bit of a sneak peek, a little bit of priming the pump for what's going to come. It means we are to repent, we are to turn away from our sins, and in fact, turn towards Christ, trust in him. We trust that Jesus, the Messiah, is the one who saves us. By his death and resurrection, we can be saved. It's not about what we can accomplish. It's not about what we can do. It's about what Jesus has done on our behalf. That is how we are saved. It is simply by our faith, by our trust in him. For everyone who would trust in the name of Jesus. In fact, Peter himself is gonna say in just a couple chapters, there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is, no, there is salvation in Jesus for those who would trust in him. So the question is, do you trust him? Do you trust Jesus for your salvation? Have you placed your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins? Don't let this day go by without addressing that, without dealing with Jesus himself. Come talk to us, call us, email us, whatever it is, get in contact with a friend, whoever, deal with Jesus. He is the Messiah, let us trust in him for our salvation. But hear me, Jesus is also the Lord. He is the God that we follow and obey. Again, not to earn our place before him, but because we have been saved, now we follow after him. We obey him because he is our our creator who loves us, who calls us to himself. We follow him because he is worthy of all of our life. He is infinitely worthy of all of our praise and honor and worship that we can give. And in fact, Jesus is the Lord who sends us the Holy Spirit, empowers us, or empowers us by the Holy Spirit, who dwells in us to continue to serve Him and proclaim His name. Jesus is the Lord. Let us trust in Him, follow Him, obey Him, showcase the, the glory and the power and the majesty and the goodness for all to see. Let us use our gifts to serve our King and Lord, our Savior and God. So what do we do? How do we respond to Jesus? Trust and obey. Jesus is the Messiah and Lord. This is the first sermon of the church. and In many ways, it's the same sermon that we have been preaching for 2,000 years, isn't it? It's the same message that we have been declaring. Jesus is the Messiah, he is the one who saves us. It's the message that Jesus is the Lord, he is the one who reigns in majesty and glory, worthy of all our praise and admiration. It's the message that the Holy Spirit comes to empower us to live out his word for each and every believer and to God goes all the glory. This is the message of the Christian church. It's the message of the church of Jesus Christ. From the very beginning till now, we have proclaimed, Jesus is Lord. There is salvation in his name. Let us trust in him. Proclaim the good news. Praise him until he comes again. Amen, amen. Let's pray together. Oh Father, we thank you so much. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. Lord, it is holy by your grace. We have not deserved what Jesus has done. We did not deserve it. Lord, we were far from you, yet you sent Jesus to be our Messiah. To be the one who would intercede on our behalf, who would would call us to yourself. Oh Lord, we pray. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, that we would proclaim this good news of who you are, of what you have done. Father, would we delight in knowing that we are not alone, that you will not abandon us, that we might serve our King, our Lord, our Savior, and our God. We ask these things in your name, amen, amen.